0: Good morning, everybody. It's been a pleasure to um, look through Ruth, study it, prepare for it. I hope you've enjoyed reading it yourself and the previous three weeks that we've had together looking at it. Chapter four, the finale. Well, Ruth, is not just a story, albeit a true and, and wonderful and beautiful story. We need to allow it to teach us greater truths. Truths which connect both you and I to this book. So, as we do come to this last chapter, I don't want us to miss this big picture. We can sometimes be too quick to read ourselves into a story and draw from it lessons like that you need to be like him, or you need to be like her, or you need to do this, or you need to do that. The way in which we relate to it, how it involves us, is far more liberating and thrilling. See, the book of Ruth provides a wonderful story of redemption, finding rest in the Redeemer. It's about finding rest from uncertainty and the fear of our ultimate welfare. See, don't we all worry to some degree, about the future. I find it really hard sometimes being self-employed. I find it difficult not to, to stop wondering where the next jobs are going to come in for the following month. It's about finding rest from the seeming futility of life that death brings, that all our struggles, all our laboring, all our striving in this life, is brought to a meaningless end when we die. But our life that we live now is instead actually worth something. It's worth preserving because it's heading somewhere that lies beyond the grave. Well, remember Naomi's prayer uh, regarding Ruth and Orpah back in chapter one. The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Well finding rest is not exclusive to Ruth or even Naomi. It is something that every honest human heart desires. That's why 90 odd percent of the world chases after it though never finding it. I'm sure each one of us wants rest. Rest from the effects of aging and disease, and injury to our bodies. Rest from the vain striving for security and acceptance. Rest from the guilt we may carry. We only find it in a redeemer. Finding rest with a husband has set the trajectory of this book, and right now we find ourselves just around the corner from its conclusion. Faith has led Ruth to God. God has shown his love to Ruth through a Redeemer. And now Ruth wants to fully commit in marriage and enjoy the life of which only a worthy Redeemer can give her. It's like Naomi is directly speaking to us when she says at the end of chapter 3, Wait, Abbey Church, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. We will find out how the matter turns out this morning. We're going to divide our uh, um, our chapter into two, verses 1 to 11a, and then 11b up to the end. We'll spend more time on the first half, of which I've given the title, The Willing Redeemer Seals the Deal. The Willing Redeemer Seals. Seals the deal. See, verses 1 to 11a deals with all the legal stuff surrounding this kinsman redeemer issue. But far from being uh, full of small print and rather boring, it provides us a window into the heart of Boaz. And it brings us about a concrete finality to the question will it ever happen? That question that's been with us since the beginning of chapter 2. This first half, again, can be divided into two halves. So the willing redeemer seals the deal. But the first half of that will be redemption comes at a price. And the second is that redemption is uh, irrevocable, fixed and permanent. So redemption comes at a price. Verses 1 to 6. So the story now takes us to Boaz, who in verse 1 goes up to the gate and sits down. He's at the gate, the place uh, back in those days where social and civil business was conducted. So if you wanted to do business, the gate was the place to do it. Once again, it just so happens that this other redeemer, who we've been told has essentially got first dibs on Elimelech's inheritance, comes along. Boaz asks him to turn aside and sit with him, as he does with ten other elders. And he wants those to sit down with them to act as witnesses to, about what, uh, to what he's about to do and say. Now comes the nitty-gritty, the conditions of the deal. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, Is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. But we know this is not the full deal. Boaz leaves out a vital part of the sale. See, this is intentional and for our benefit. See, whilst there is a prospect of gaining more land, um, this unnamed redeemer remains very interested. And when Boaz pushes him for an answer at the end of verse 4, this spanner in the works says, I will redeem it. This is not what should happen. See, Boaz is supposed to be the knight in shining armor. But by separating uh, these parts of the deal in this way, in the way that Boaz does, it allows us not to only understand the level of commitment and motivation of the unnamed kinsman redeemer, but by doing so, it isolates the particular redemptive intentions of Boaz. See, then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. The cost of redemption has just shot up. At this, the Redeemer said, "Uh, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. I believe, is a very thinly disguised, I will not do it. Ruth proves to be too much of an imposition and a threat to his own estate. The fact is that by bringing Ruth into the family, it'll mean that he'll have to share out out his inheritance. And that would mean that some of what he already has will go to Ruth's potential offspring, And it's a problem, because although he will be the biological dad of the firstborn son, the son will take on the name and be regarded as the heir of Marlon, Ruth's late husband. He had no problem when he was gaining something, but now it meant sharing his enthusiasm for the deal went south. And it was a shameful thing to do, to deny your right to redeem. Yet such was his desire to keep his own, his own. He was willing to endure that shame and not to bring new life and security to others. By marrying Ruth, he would have been perpetuating the name of the dead in his inheritance, maintaining a purpose and identity for the life of Elimelech and his family. Have you noticed that this other redeemer is not named at all? I think I believe his name has been left out because we don't need to know it. His purpose is to cast light on the willingness of the true hero, Boaz. It doesn't matter who he is. What really matters is who Boaz proves to be. The price may be too high for the nearest redeemer, but not for Boaz. This takes us to verses 7 to 11a where the redemption is irrevocable, fixed, and permanent. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to another. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Might I say that if I were to hand over one of my shoes to someone else, it would be regarded as a hostile act, A declaration of war. (laughs) Thankfully, we're given a uh, commentary as to what is happening in these verses, thus avoiding such diplomatic misunderstandings. Remember the scene. We are by the gate where business is done. There are ten elders as witnesses, and we have a method here of legalizing a transaction. This is how you go about sealing a deal. Witness publicly, and apparently with a sandal. And here we see in contrast to what just has just happened. When asked to buy it for himself, Boaz draws off one of his sandals. He takes up this role of redeemer without hesitation and willingly. In contrast, his willingness to redeem with that of that other unnamed redeemer. Boaz is willing. More than that, he wants to give from his own to that which will become his own. He is willing to share his estate. And it will be passed on to generations through him. And through him, the name of the dead will not be forgotten or cut off. The dead will be included amongst the people of God through his offspring. Now, it's a little late to issue a spoiler alert. We've read the chapter together. We know that Boaz ends up marrying Ruth. But look how one-sided the author favours reporting this part of the redemption story. See, the supposed goal of the book is for Ruth to marry. But it's given the briefest of mentions in verse 13, whereas the whole dealing with the business of redemption takes up over half of the chapter. See, getting to verse 13 without paying attention to the preceding verses is like watching uh, just the fireworks at the closing ceremony of the Olympic Games without watching any of the games and competitions itself. Oh, it's a great and joyful spectacle, but it's only the inevitable end to all the important stuff that has already happened in the fortnight preceding it. We are meant to take note of the lessons we learned from this transaction. The stuff that happens before the marriage ceremony. See, we have already seen that this is regarded as a legal transaction. It's binding. We have seen that he has entered into it willingly. We know it has been witnessed, not by uh, only 10 elders, but apparently in verse 9, by all the people. It is also attested or confirmed, in verse 11, by all those who have been there. The people say, we are witnesses. The equivalent of signing a a witness, signing their signature on a contract today. What do the facts then therefore tell us about this transaction? We know that Boaz is wholeheartedly committed. See, it goes beyond a vague commitment. What Boaz enters into by what he says and does is irrevocable. It is fixed and it is permanent. There is no going back on this deal. He wants everyone to know this. The end of verse 10, he says, You are my witnesses. He is not coerced. He is not reluctant but desires the sealing of this deal. He wants it, and he wants us to know it as well. There's one final thing that I want to draw to our attention in this section regarding this fixed ceiling of the deal. In verse 10, in addition to land, Boaz brings our attention to what he has also bought. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife. This is a redemption marriage. And by this transaction, he declares his betrothal to Ruth. See, nowadays, when we get, in, uh, we, we, uh, get engaged rather than betrothed, don't we? An engagement is regarded as two people agreeing to marry at some point in the future. But it can be a very fluid state of affairs. So you can be engaged one day and not the next. You can change your mind whenever you feel like it. If your fi- fiancé uh, fiance annoys you, or if they seem to develop a permanent off day, then you can call it off. Betrothal is, a complete, is completely different in nature. See, the Jewish marriage is composed of two parts. And what we're witnessing with all the other people is part one. See, the first part recognizes the couple as legally married. But the marriage is also to be fully realized in the act of home-taking and consummation. You might remember that uh, Joseph decided to quietly divorce Mary when she thought she had had an affair when she ha- was carrying Jesus. Joseph and Mary hadn't completed stage two, but Joseph, Joseph had to divorce to separate. Part one and part two are, uh, are inseparable. Once you're in, you're in. Another difference to modern engagement is that it's not a decision of, oh, let's get married. as it's a good idea. It's not an agreement of that kind but it is an act of sanctification. I know many of you uh, here will know of this word and may find it a little bit odd to think of marriage in this way. But in the legal part of the Jewish marriage, the couple is recognized to be sanctified, set apart. The ceremony, Within the ceremony itself, it declares, Blessed are you, O Lord, who sanctifies your people Israel through hoopah and... Kedushin, I'm not too sure about the pronunciation, but through the covering of the hupa, that canopy made from the two talits or talits that Chris um, demonstrated and reminded us of last week. So it's sanctified through the hooper, the covering, and the Kedushin. And Kedushin is betrothal. Betrothal is an act of sanctifying, taking possession Setting apart a wife in marriage. Entering into an exclusive relationship. Just as God did with the commandments to form the nation of Israel. Setting them apart from the other nations. All of this was put into effect that day. The betrothal. The redemption. Verse 9, Boaz says... You are witnesses this day. Loved, sanctified, bought, redeemed, secured, attested, witnessed, legally bound. This is what we need to know. So now when we read verse 13 in all its brevity, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife we understand that it is not at this point when Ruth was secured. But instead, it is the point at which all that had been paid for and guaranteed that day was fully entered into. See, from the hopelessness of chapter 1 to the secured hope in chapter 4, from an unknown future to one that is guaranteed, See, Ruth and Naomi's journeys have had their ups and downs. The transformation of Naomi's character has been remarkable, turning uh, bitterness into thankfulness. And that's been brought about by only the possibility of redemption. And now it has been secured. We have to step back and see the bigger picture because it's wonderful. Wonderful. We can connect ourselves to this story, not because we are necessarily going through similar things in our lives and can identify with the characters, though that is a right and legitimate use of the passage. Even if we were Jewish, that wouldn't be the way either. It is through the redemption that comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is incredible, isn't it, to think That so long ago that the pattern for our own redemption would be played out in the real lives of God's people so that this morning we can understand something more of our God and our Redeemer. Through his death and resurrection, publicly witnessed, Jesus bought for himself a bride and redeemed the whole earth. The Gospels are witnesses to that day. The day in which he was crucified and triumphed over death. It is finished, he cried on the cross. The redemption price was paid by the willing Redeemer. Wholeheartedly committed to the will of the Father and his love for his own. He sealed the deal. 1 Corinthians 30 says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For those in Christ, like Ruth, have been set apart exclusively by their Redeemer, we have been redeemed by an irrevocable transaction. Ruth, we've seen, is married and will also be married, the point at which she will be taken home to her Redeemer to enjoy Him. The certainty that Ruth had is ours too if we have faith in Jesus. Even more so, because of the Christ, our Redeemer, has for surpassing worthiness and a greater purchasing power that Boaz had ever had. Christ buys people, back, uh, buys people back from the dead, not just their names. See, is this truth transforming us like it did for Naomi. Does this binding and secure hope that we have in Jesus, that he paid for you, give you rest in your heart, in your soul, and in your mind, even though you may be going through difficult times at this moment? See, if it doesn't, then we need to know our Redeemer. We need to ask God for a hunger to know him more, to push deeper for the the knowledge about him, by committing daily to read and know his word and hear his voice. See, Naomi, in her situation, came to the wrong conclusion, but it was renewed through the knowledge of her redeemer. Let it be for us too. Well for the rest of the time, but more briefly, we'll, we'll see how this story ends up. Call the second section, that the fruit of redemption. See, this section concludes the story of Ruth and pivots around verse 13, the marriage of Ruth to Boaz, that final answer to to the prayer of Naomi back in chapter 1, verse 9. It begins with the prayers of the witnesses for fruitfulness of the marriage, starting in the second half of verse 11. And from the middle of verse 13 onwards, it's about the experience of that new life. And that redemption brings, both in new birth and renewed joy. Having entered into this redemption covenant, the witnesses ask the Lord of two things. Firstly, that the house of Israel may be built up. In other words, we hope you have loads of kids to contribute to the nation of Israel. See, there's a real desire to see the promises of old, of God to Abraham, to become a great nation, to have innumerable descendants come to fruition. Rachel and Leah, back in uh, Genesis 30, began the ball rolling by having 12 sons uh, between them by Jacob. These 12 became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is obviously regarded as a very good start because it was evident what the product of that family unit had become. They also asked that Boaz's house be like that of Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar, because of the offspring that they will have. See, Perez, back in uh, Genesis 38, had a bit of a scrap in the birthing canal of Tamar with his twin brother, Zerah. See, Genesis records that Zerah... Uh, records that Zerah popped his hand out first and they tied a scarlet cord around his wrist so when they were both out they could tell who was the firstborn. But then the arm, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it may make uh, the women wince, but the arm uh, retracted back up inside Tamar and then Perez was the one who came out first. See the point being is that is God's sovereign choice that Perez was to be the firstborn. And that it was he who was the one on to carry on the lineage, the family name of the house of Judah. And to consider how Jacob blesses Judah in Genesis 49, that's a great honor because it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. They were asking, that the, Lord, uh, asking the Lord that the ruling power, the kingship of Judah, would to continue to be passed down through the line of Ruth and Boaz's offspring. Boaz then actually does marry Ruth, taking her into his home and consummating that marriage, becoming one flesh and they have a child together. Well, let's not forget the theme of God's sovereign power and providence that's been at work all the way through this story. See, Ruth had been married to Marlon for 10 years, but had no children. Evidently, there was something not functioning as it should, so it required God to give her conception. Demonstrating once again that the continuation of the redemption story is an act of God and not prone to failure because of the limitations of man. And strangely, that's the last we hear of Ruth. Our story now ends with Naomi and Ruth's son, Obed. Obed was a miracle baby whose name means servant and is declared to be Naomi's redeemer in verse 14. See, redemption for Naomi meant that Obed would give her a renewed life and sustenance in her old age. Life and family, happiness and joy. See, these verses tell, of, tell us of a wonderful ongoing conclusion to what started out as a barren, death-ridden and insecure beginning. The women of the neighborhood go on to say about Obed, a son has been born to Naomi, and indeed he was. He was Elimelech's heir. God cares and restores. God brings life when there is none. The name of Elimelech will not be forgotten because of this child redeemer. The last few words of the story are rather matter of fact. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. But it was far from matter of fact. See, we've already seen in Obed, in Rachel and Leah, Judah, Tamar, Perez and Boaz, the importance of lineage and the significance of that family line. Though I haven't mentioned it before, Judah himself was a kinsman redeemer with Perez as his firstborn son albeit in a rather messy and mixed-up kind of way, which you can read all about in Genesis 38. And so within our passage alone, we have three redeemers. We have servants and the hint of a kingly line of Judah. What are we to learn and where is all this heading? We're supposed to ask that question. It appears that it's all heading to David. That's how verse 17 ends up, as well as the genealogy between 18 and 22. The end is the king. And this is not an add-on to the redemptive love story of Ruth, but quietly surrounds it. Ruth was set in the times when the judges ruled, it tells us in chapter 1. A time of moral wickedness and apostasy. And the book, it's thought, was written in and around the lifetime of King David himself. So there is a sense that God's kingly rule is a redemptive role, leading people out of, the, uh, out of death and wickedness of the time of the judges and into the promises of a new kingdom. We can also have that expectation of redemption because of those named in this genealogy and know that God is a redeeming God. Ruth is a redemptive story of one family. But the genealogies open it up to a much wider audience, helping us understand that the whole course of history is flowing to a a, a, a particular conclusion for us all. And so we find our place in it by recognizing the ultimate Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who answers all those expectations removes our fears, removes our guilt, removes our insecurity, and fulfills all the promises of rest and brings about peace through his kingship. We are not at the end of our own stories or neither the story of humanity. Yet we can be sure of God's purposes and providence. Because despite looking back and finding that there have been uh, some pretty fallen human beings involved in the background to this particular story, God's plan has carried on. We also have the privilege to be able to look back and see Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, who has bought us at a price. So we wait in Christ, for Christ. That is... Like Naomi, we allow ourselves to be transformed by the blessings of his loving kindness. And like Ruth, we seek refuge and redemption by faith in him. We rest. We rest in the inevitability of that final act of marriage, which by faith we enter into. He will return because he has secured it. He has secured it for us willingly and irrevocably. And when he does, he is coming to take us home. We will know life to its fullness. We will know the eternal blessings of his perfect reign. The matter is settled today.